This is Slashers, your new favorite podcast about your new favorite horror media. My name is Jake, and with me as always are my esteemed colleagues, co-hosts, and cohorts, Adrian, Adam, and Doug. Say hello to the mutant goons from beyond. Hello, all you wonderful, wet, steamy, and gossipy mutant goons from beyond. This is Doug. Hey, goons, it's Adam. Hope you're having a squishy day. Hey, guys, it's Anne. I feel like maybe Adrian needs to come in first for like polite. You, it's really hard to top squishy day, right? No, I can't. But why would I top that? So Adam gets to have his moment and I just I slide on in afterwards. It was, it was a good morning of a deflated balloon. <laughs> I'm excited. I swear. I'm just making sure that like my thing is, is working. It's working. So we're good. Sorry. Now, Adam, I know that you're musically inclined. Just an idea. If you would like to re-record Bill Withers' Lovely Day as Squishy Day, I will host it on this show for free. Mm, now, which uh, genre are we going for? Are we going to do a techno remix? Are we going to go straight street punk? Let's do Euro trance, where it's like, mm, mm, day, squishy day. Mm. I am about this. This is happening. I call that piston fucking music. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh. Not piss and fucking piston, where it's like mechanical engineering. It's like fisting. Yes. But robots. Fisting. <laughs> So, Mr. Fister. <laughs> Adrian is so unhappy with us as human beings right now. She literally, her eyes just texted S-I-G-H-H-H-L-O-L. No, it did not. I'm fine. I'm just listening. I'm, po- I'm being polite. I'm being polite here. So we are continuing Troll March with a movie that I am very excited about. Rabid Grannies. I had only seen this once before, and I basically logged it in the very back of my brain. It was one where I compared it directly to movies like Dead Alive, and I feel like I cheapened the experience with the comparisons because this movie is super fun. Your one second review. What do you guys think of this film before we really dive into the nitty gritty of it all? The nitty granny of it all. Well, I'll definitely say that uh, Rabid Grannies is one of my favorite non-Lloyd Kaufman trauma films. This film, it's it's very European. It's it's filmed in Belgium. And honestly, it's like a great mix of, because I love killer grannies in movies. It's a great mix of demons. And then uh, they also look like uh, big headed aliens. So you yeah. get a little bit of that. So it's it's a great, and it also feels like Resident Evil 1. Do you remember that game? Uh, oh, the, the atmosphere? mansion, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's definitely atmospheric. I think it's one of Troma's most horrific films in terms of like trying to be scary because you know, you watch this as a kid you know these grannies are fucking scary yeah it's, it's a lot drier i think that the humor it is humorous but the type of humor is not trauma humor trauma humor is absurdist this is dry european humor that kind of chafes the balls adam what do you think yeah this is like resident evil meets downton abbey or like night of the demons meets golden girls i really really love pissing off my wife by calling it downtown abbey especially in public when people are like wearing a shirt. I'm like, hey, babe, they like Downtown Abbey, too. And she's like, you're embarrassing me in front of my people. The spite pronunciation. And Aid, what did you think of Rabbit Grannies? Oh, this is definitely my favorite trauma one that you guys subjected me to. So I really, really liked this one. It was dark. It was it was actually scary. I fucking love that they just tore a little girl's legs off and like <laughs> flew down the stairs. That was so fun. So it it 
it didn't hold back. And I don't think, and you probably don't like me for saying this, but it's not as raunchy or nasty as far as like dirty, like the other ones are. And maybe that's why I like it. Cause it's more, you know, it's more like my style. It's just a little more sophisticated, I guess. I'm not trying to say I'm sophisticated, but I'm just saying. That's the second time this week where your nose has been so high up in the air that I'm, I'm worried about your oxygenation. I can breathe better from up here, I'm telling you. So I'm actually really impressed. I was absolutely sure that one of you was going to compare it to Angelica Houston in Witches, and that didn't happen. Oh. So Or Huston Angelica Witches. The, where they Angie. look at the end, where they look like scrotal alien sack heads, that's mm. the same thing to me. So yeah, I feel very juvenile by comparison to all of you now. Yeah, those ball bag hags fucked me up as a kid. Mm. It's the most awkward of my boners I think I've ever had. We were talking about gilfs earlier, and I think Angelica Huston, right there. Mm. Mm. Just want to take a bite. <laughs> Got a meal. On the topic of intercourse, let me let me uh, regale you guys with a, a brief anecdote, if you will. So the other day, I get a, a special surprise from my wife in the middle of my workday, and then some honky sends me a shitty email with a bunch of exclamation points. And I I came to my wife later. I was like, "Well, thank you for that beautiful gift that you gave me, because otherwise." I hadn't had that tension release, I would have reached through my computer and slapped this fool like Bill Cosby and Ghost Dad, just making sure I had to make that very topical reference because he's still so in vogue. Right, guys? Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> Billy C? I'm, I'm nodding. I'm agreeing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that joke was as tired as me after a Cosby politan. Oh, wow. Oh. Okay, that was a totally a trauma joke. <laughs> Jell, oh no, you didn't. Anybody going to do that putting it where it doesn't belong joke? I was just going to put and pop that one right in. Ha, all right. So let's get into the movie itself. As Doug had alluded to, this is not a Kaufman joint with any of the trauma team. This is a movie that was just simply distributed by trauma. So it is trauma only in distribution. So the characters and constituents who created this thing, do we want to get into the quote unquote statistics of it all? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Well, I guess I'll do the statistics here. But uh, yeah, this film came out in 1988. And uh, for those of you who uh, are trying to get a hold of it or seeing it on YouTube, it is uncut. So you want to make sure you get a hold of that copy because the trauma releases, the DVD, and even the Blu-ray, they're all cut and censored. So if you want the real thing, just watch it on YouTube as much as I hate to say that there. Well, it's truly bizarre. We were talking about this before we aired, how cut it is. Because I actually you know, went back and watched comparisons. It is laughably cut. Like the scene where they drag the woman across the table and eat her, you don't see any violence. You just see a dabbing of the mouth afterwards. You don't see the amputated legs on the little girl. It is bereft of any of the stuff that makes it fun. If you watch it the other way, it's just as bad as witches. But then if you watch it the reverse, you're like, oh, this is very much more that dead alive kind of feel. So highly, highly recommend the YouTube version. Sorry about it, Lloyd. Yeah, there is definitely, definitely a lot of stuff in the uncut version worth seeing because, yeah, I mean, just that little girl scene was was fucking amazing. Like, I don't think something's hit me like that in a while. Yeah, because you certainly expect it to be like the reversal, right? We're like, oh, we're setting up the tension and we're going to relieve it by, you know, her getting away. Nope. She like double did. Yep. I just love where her mother gets up to the top of the stairs. She sees this leg coming down the stairs and she runs up and she's like, nope, I'm fucking out. 
Yeah. Oh, by the way, too, did you notice that the the dog with the the shaggy dog was eating the le- one of the legs? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. You can't miss that shit. It's all stringy <laughs> and awesome. <laughs> yeah, a lot of movies uh, will kill kids off, especially as violently as that did. So I that was great. <laughs> you know, I come from the Stephen King camp of things. Fuck kids. It leaves an impact. Just kill kids. It really ups the ante. Yeah, and this one actually deals with some gore and violence to it all because like she's manipulating the dead body. A lot of time in King, it's like implied death. Oh, Gage is hit by a car off screen and you don't really see, you see a shoe. Here, you see the shoe in the leg in the dog's mouth. Yep. And you actually see the shot of the girl like rubbing, the grandma's like petting her hair and she's just sitting there yeah. dead with her legs chopped off. I mean, that's that's uh, that's some cojones for the Belgian filmmakers. Uh, yeah. Man- Emmanuel Kerbin who's the director of this one. Who did fucking nothing else. He was in Kickboxer 2, I believe, and then nothing else. Crazy, because wow. this is good. It really is. And and the other thing, too, uh, one of my goals is to eventually, once things start opening up again, is to go to make a trip to Belgium and go to the Ingelmunster Castle where this was filmed at. So, because uh, this was filmed in a legit castle, now it's a brewery. So you can go oh, in there and uh, have some food in Rabid Granny's Castle. Yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. A Rabid Granny Stout or anything there, I wonder. Oh, shit. I'd ask him, like, I want the Rabid Granny's, uh, you know, give me that brew that they have. Or uh, I would just want to go at the table and said, where the waiters are there. I just want to go, Radu, bring knife for the cake. Radu, bring. <laughs> they say that like 15 times. Like, just it's like, bring the fucking knife for the cake. Like, nothing. Chant to bring the knife for the cake. I don't think he ever brought it, did he? I don't even think he brought it. Someone else brought it in. No, it was Alice, right? Yeah. After all that. I don't know. I'm just, I, well, I literally just watched it yesterday, so. Well, how did you guys like the uh, the asshole family members in this film? You know, the setup of this movie feels a lot like Clue. with Tim. Very much. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's good, but, like, convoluted. First and foremost, I really didn't like the fact that the young lesbian girl is only characterized as just that but it was also weird because like there was like a push and pull it wasn't just that these people were awful to her so it was just really weird throughout for that element of it but i feel like the characters were bad and not bad enough i guess did you guys get that kind of vibe yeah they were definitely straddling that that line they didn't really go in the direction of being redeemable but they weren't like full-on assholes it's not like they did anything truly monstrous that they deserve all of this stuff that happens to them but yeah it definitely was a little too in between yeah, no, the family, the, the whole lesbian couple thing was interesting. And then with the, the cousin and hitting on her and she's kind of just with that woman because of the money issue. So that was probably the, the one that stuck out the most for me. And it, it was strange because I don't think we really see relationships portrayed or at least like that. And of course, they knew that her being a lesbian was going to be an issue. And she even talks about it in the car, saying that they're going to just give you shit for it the entire time there. We're not here to have fun. We're not here to enjoy ourselves, blah, blah, blah. But that was, I don't want to say that was bizarre. I think that was probably the harshest of what the family did. Because the family, the the, the parents with the two kids, like, they were normal. The spinster on the bicycle, she was pretty average. Uh, then there's the jerk playboy of the family. They're all like, you know typecast characters. I just thought that the the quote lesbians were just a little not that they're out of place. To me that was interesting. I don't know what you guys thought about that. Especially because I don't think that the quote lesbian, the younger one, was really lesbian. I think she was just just with her because 
But then after she dies, exactly, she just lingers as the default lesbian. So much so the guy yeah. even just says, shut up, lesbian, shut or whatever. Lesbian. <laughs> and so yeah. it's like, if she was opportunistic and just exploiting this woman, wouldn't that facade end when the woman is gone? Again, like you're saying, it's kind of like this weird, do you guys, were you impressed? They had the restraint not to make the priest rapey boy. I was just going to bring up the priest. They made him like an asshole and I really enjoyed how they fucked with him like that was some twisted shit in the end like yeah. telling him oh do you want to kill yourself to save yourself the pain while you're still here or oh wait but you're a priest so if you kill yourself you go straight to hell we love bad priests in hell and just the back and forth there was like oh man this is fucked yeah this is great too and that's what I think makes rabid granny stand out as opposed to like films like demons you know where they're just like kind of crazy killing people they're gonna go in there and they're gonna play uh, you know mind games like the one grandma the one grandma's like don't kill yourself I just want to rip your intestines out pull your eyeballs out slowly and smash your ears and crush your skull and you scream and it's only gonna last about 50 seconds but is it worth it saving your soul from going to hell by killing you know what I mean like that's uh they truly truly traumatize these people they just destroy them psychologically and i think that's probably yeah better than demons because yeah they really pull it off in this one i think and demons is kind of limited by set and everything it's very localized this there's the exploration and stuff I feel like they could have used a little bit more of that like i really like the catacombs under it and i like the element they almost get away and i really like the hood ornament man that version versus the cut versus the uncut it's not even like grotesque when her head's like in the fence but that's gone in the other version you see her coming towards the fence and a little fleck of blood on light and that's it and i'm like it's not even that bad it just it's again one of those kind of like cheeky fun almost cartoonish things so yeah, but I, I do you guys feel like that was kind of lost a little bit? What, what's that with the gore and the hood ornament scene? I really ruined that question. So let me rephrase it. Do you guys feel like they could have explored a little bit more of the locale? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the set that they had, I mean, they were working at this castle. I mean, yeah, they, they could have used the set for a lot more kills and just uh, the definite more of the cat and mouse kind of game they were playing. But I, I don't think they did a bad job with it. No, not at all. I just, I liked it a lot. You have such an interesting setting and I get that shooting locations and, you know, schedules and shooting at night and everything has got to be so difficult, but I also don't give a fuck. Give me the movie I want, please. And now, and thank you. We're selfish. Yeah. Yeah. And I got to say, too, like just the whole location of that mansion, because if you watch it closely, you can't like throughout the whole film, you hear that howling of the open windows throughout the film. So it's like yeah. that that gloomy, like like lights out type mansion. And it, it, it's it's creepy. Like this is honestly, like I said, one of Troma's creepiest films. You know, it's still got the humor, but it, it tries to be a horror film. The violence in this one, like this one left a lot more of a dark lasting impact than a lot because a lot of Troma's other films, they they just make light of this extreme violence. Yeah. Like when the kid gets his head run over in Toxic Avenger, it's like, yeah, that's fucked up. But like kind of just didn't stick with me as much as this little girl's legs being thrown down the stairs and the like just the whole psychological follow through with every bit to each person as they're basically just toying with them as they kill them. And there's no comedic button to that. That's just no. mean spirit, right? Like I arguably you could say that like the throwing of the leg is like a gag, but that happens before. So then you're left with the consequence of it. And it's kind of like when you jack off and then you like look at what you just jacked off to with a sober brain and you're like, oh and you just close the laptop with shame. I'm, like, I'm ashamed of myself. What happened to this Bo Svensson bestiality porno? <laughs> hey, who's been looking at my search terms? You said that the Geek Squad services you gave me were confidential. 
Oh yeah, Geek Squad. Yeah, you get fat guys just saying, "Is something wrong with my computer?" And there's there's canned beans on the keyboard, and a fat guy's just sitting there waxing his carrot on the thing. He's like, "You think anything's wrong with the computer?" I'm like, "Yeah, your computer's fucked." Yeah, literally, it's been <laughs> it's been intercourse. You have put your dick inside of this thing. It now contains fluids. Yeah. Well, how much does it cost to clean the cum out of the keyboards? That's usually what they say. It's not my fault that your dick is 3.5 millimeter. Am I right? For those of you who don't know, your headphone, that little tiny jack, that's 3.5 millimeter jack. That's a little audio humor. I don't know. It's something I do. It's something I do. It's a little jack off humor. Yeah. Well, that's how you get, uh, I guess that's a Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 joke. Uh, You know, they say like, oh, how do you get a pea brain off? I don't know. And I'm just going to do this. They go up to the zipper and they just start. (laughs) 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 That's why you need to do the Patreon, kids. You get to see the the carrot top, over the top, live action humor from Doug. (laughs) (laughs) God damn it. All access. That's for the OnlyFans. Yeah. Not even the Patreon pages. I have to create a new tier on a different pay site. (laughs) So when it came to the film and its contemporaries, I mean, I was only really able to find that it was distributed in North America in 1988. Did you guys find anything else? Because I remember... The movie, uh, The Spider Labyrinth, was also 1988. Doug, I know that one's mm-hmm. a big favorite of yours. Oh, yeah, I like that one. Well, that's kind of the same thing where uh, it's under a few different names. Like overseas, this movie is not called Rabid Grannies. Uh, it's called Los Memes Cannibales. I think that's I was going to touch or... on that because, yeah, Cannibal Grannies makes a lot more sense than Rabid. There's no rabies. There's This is demonology. Yeah, I, I think that has to do a lot with trauma because I, I you got to think like uh, back in the 80s when when Lloyd and them were picking up these films for distribution, they renamed a lot of these films like Stuff Stephanie and the Incinerator or, um, you know, Deadly Daphne's Revenge and Rabid Grannies. And so and then Blood Sucking Freaks was called something else. You know what I mean? It's, it's these tacky names that people would just rent off the video store shelves to make it more appealing. Although I do like Cannibal Grannies. That's a good, uh, you know, sounds like a good death metal screamo band, too. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess we'll go to the other contemporaries of 1988. You had movies like Tetsuo the Iron Man, They Live, Akira, Child's Play, Robo Vampire, Troma War. There's the Uninvited. So there was a lot of really weird killer clowns from outer space. Return of the Killer Tomatoes. Stuff that was horror, but obviously pushing way far beyond Hell Comes to Frogtown, Mac and Me. I mean, solid year, right? But for like B stuff, like the really bonkers, crazy B movie stuff. I I didn't know 88 had that many titles, but it also had stuff like Beetlejuice. So, I mean, Mm. that was also us pervasively taking over the mainstream because Beetlejuice should not exist. Let me tell you plainly, that movie is an aberration of the likes of which I've never seen. Because I'm like, wait, hold on. You guys were just fine. In fact, the only criticism I've seen a lot of like normal folk have is that Sammy Davis Jr. almost played the Beetlegrease. Which I would have been fine for. That would have been interesting to see. So So. fucking entertained at that idea. Well, did you see the original um, idea for Beetlejuice was supposed to be like this Middle Eastern man who uh, was like a winged gargoyle that that eats Delia. It was like a rapist, right? Yeah, he was a rapist. Yeah. Middle Eastern like salesman. Very Candyman in the way that 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 ending goes. Yeah. So anyway, back to this actual movie itself. I just wanted to highlight what it was going out against. And obviously, this was not something with a big blockbuster theatrical release. The fact that it exists at all is kind of a novelty. And I, I kind of the reason I was comparing the two was Rabid Grannies compared to a lineup like that. I could see how easily that just kind of gets pushed to the side. Like this is not like zombies. It's it's just wrong. Like Grannies from Hell, much better to me. Are there any other names that you guys tinkered around with besides obviously the Cannibalists? 
French thing I can't pronounce? Well, I, I, when I was younger, I used to call this the rabid emo grannies for some reason. Like, I'm just like, it was just <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just like, oh, well, the rabid emo grannies. I'm like, no, no, emo's not in there. I don't know. I, I That was my only thing on there. I think rabid grannies is perfectly fitting. And this is one of the few trauma films from the 80s that doesn't have its own theme song. So, you know, like like Kabuki Man had their own theme yeah. song, Class in Newcomb High, uh, Toxic yeah. Avenger, uh, Part 2. Uh, this is one of the ones that doesn't. So I feel like, but, but that classical music for its opening, I think fits this film pretty good because it's it's creepy yet it's still playful and can be mean and sadistic too so that, that fits it perfectly i can't think of any other names uh, but what about you Aiden, adam no <laughs> i i don't know i mean i think cannibal grannies would be much better because they do eat them so that makes more sense but it's fine i didn't know this movie existed until you guys told me like last week so i'm kind of sad though because it came out like i was born in 88 so 88 was good year but i think that it would have been a lot like i i wish i had seen it sooner because this is this is my kind of movie i do like these darker more twisted slower burns the beginning kind of movies I do like the fact that, you know, they're isolated in this one spot. I do like that the family's kind of shitty, so you sort of don't feel bad that some of them die. And and let's talk about how useless every fucking man is in this movie. The only redeemable character is the lesbian they keep talking shit to, and she's the one who basically, like, her and the spinster save the day. So there we go. But yeah, so like... Literally, I don't need no man. We didn't need no fucking men. No, I was going to say, so I was looking into some lore of this, like, throughout the whole family... Apparently, uh, in the script, they're the Remington family. So Victoria and Elizabeth Remington. So they're the ones that are in charge of the Remington razors and, and shavers and stuff. So that's why they're rich. So that's what I looked oh. into. I'm like, oh, well, that I guess that makes sense. Like, you know, Penn Gillette is somehow, you know, the, the founder of uh, Gillette. <laughs> so. okay. There you go. I just wanted to give my my name because I know I had said crannies from hell. But what I really I always wanted demonic dowagers because I'm very impressed with myself that I know what a dowager is. So we can move on. <laughs> Well, are you going to explain for the rest of us? No, because that's what encyclopedias and dictionaries Son are for. Son of a bitch. Alexa, like, can you Alexa what's that? the name of a dowager? <laughs> <laughs> it's called a book, Doug. Oh, Alexa got jokes. Anyway, back to the movie. Characters we like. We're obviously all pro-team lesbian. Any other characters that we like? And then we can get to the ones that we hated and how we like their comeuppances. I felt bad for Alice. Alice was just there doing work. I mean, she was just ugh, taking care of everything because Radu couldn't even bring out the knife. And uh, the cook lady was just running her ragged and then she just gets tossed out the window. I mean, she's one of the first to go, right? Also, cook lady ends up on the cover of the movie for some reason, even though she's not one of the rabbit granny. Yeah, she was slacking the entire time. Fuck that bitch. Super weird. Yeah, the cook's one of the rudest uh, people I am, you know, in, in the movie, I think, uh, besides the guy looks like Mr. Creostro from uh, Monty Python. But we'll get to him in a bit. Uh, but no, Alice, I do feel bad for the most. She even had to encounter the creepiest. Honestly, the creepiest scene in this film is when she goes to get that box from that 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 witch at the gate. She's like, open this gate. I don't like talking through bars. Like, I, honestly, like that. That's good nightmare. That's a really well-directed horror scene. That, that's creepy stuff. Can I tell you how that was ruined for me? Why was it ruined? I just watched Ghostbusters 2, and so it reminded me of Nanny Yanush. Oh, yeah, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I see, see Nanny Yanush, uh, he flies in through high-rise buildings, uh, not like this one. It's Yanush. It, it is Vigo. Seriously. <laughs> Vigo. 
my wife had not seen that movie in like 20 years when we recently watched it and she was really really annoyed at how much i like that character he's like well, you guys have heard me talk about my love of beverly hills cop and bronson pinchot this foreign man character is great because he's not even being racist against anybody because it's fake that dude just sat in his trailer and came up with carpathianese yeah and the thing is too like the great joke of it is like uh, i think when uh, bill murray says where are you from he's like the upper west side <laughs> it's so good like <laughs> That movie deserves none of the hate it gets. Dude, and like when he's talking to her about the pinnacle of luxury of being the king and queen of the world. And he's like, we parking. can get a car and yes. parking and an apartment. I'm like, dude, this guy's got it It's right going to be mine in Vigo's world. Mostly Vigo's. <laughs> yeah. Put him in this movie. He'd be grateful just to have free lobster yeah, dinner. Well, that guy's a good actor. He's also in the Mr. Bean movie, the one where Mr. Bean comes to L.A. That's a, that's a, that's a classic Absolutely. that we talked about. So. Oh, that's a great movie. I fucking love that. Also, can we talk about how short the Mr. Bean series is? It's like 10 episodes long and it was like so like a cornerstone of my childhood from all the clips. It's and stuff. got such a legacy, man. It do- And you want to know why it has yeah. a legacy, too? Because the comedy Mr. Bean does. He's like an actor's actor. You know what I mean? Like anybody from any culture, yep. any language, they could understand what's going on in Mr. Bean because, you know, it's physical comedy. So there's no real jokes. To it. It's just, you know, and any culture, any language can pick it up. Yeah, slapstick. Slapstick definitely crosses the language barrier. Well, and that's why stuff that uh, Rowan Atkinson did like Black Adder and Black Adder Goes Forth and all those doesn't really stand the test of time necessarily for a lot of people because the cultural divide is too different. But that's one of the things I really like about him is you just you have the everything. You have the silly slapstick Harpo marks and then you have the sophisticated Groucho marks. It's yeah, and he was pretty different. serious in uh, what you mentioned earlier, uh, the witches. Remember, he was the the, the manager of the hotel. Mm-hmm. 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 I remember seeing him with an <laughs> awkward boner. <laughs> that boner just got a lot more awkward. It wasn't as awkward as the time that I had the boner with him with the turkey on his head. That one came out of nowhere. I get it. I could see that. I mean, that's something you'd see maybe like on uh, like the East 55th and marginal for you Cleveland, Ohio people. Oh. <laughs> Giant hang like lizard skin down. Oh, God. That scene, uh, I master basted to mm. the turkey oh. scene. Anyone? I'm trying to think of a paltry joke, but <laughs> okay. I can't. <laughs> all- <laughs> it's paltry in comparison. That was foul. <laughs> yeah. Uh something something <laughs> gizzard. Gizzard. I don't know. I'm I'll workshop it. I'll come back after an open mic or two. Uh, what do we think of the music on this film? Uh, done by Jean Bruno Castellane. I mean, it's mostly harpsichord, right? Yeah, it's mostly harpsichord and then at the end credits you get kind of like that goofy almost like Return of the Living Dead theme, which I don't mm. think fits. I don't know. It's like there's two different tones going on in this movie. Yeah. What this movie needed is what virtually every movie from the 80s had a rap about the movie at the end credits of the movie. I thought you were going to say Huey Lewis. That would have been perfect. Oh, I'm going to go back. I hate to be the guy who's like, hey, I posted something that was very funny, but fuck everybody who's my friend on Facebook who didn't appreciate this because I said, say what you will about Bobby Brown, but at least nobody sued him for his Ghostbusters song because On Our Own is a very capable song. Slaps, man. Like I came into the uh, the studio when my band was recording years back. Did he just snort all of the drugs and then leave? About. That's what I heard. I wasn't in there. My singer, my uh, drummer were in and he like tried to start rapping over a track saying like drums, bass, rock and roll. Like it got really cringy really fast. <laughs> I really wish I, I, I wish I showed up that day. Yeah. All right. So going through the narrative of the film. 
I like how vague and ambiguous it is. I like that there isn't like the button necessarily at the end with the evil disregarded family member. So they're all going to a dinner because these old dowagers are wanting their birthday celebration. Everybody's putting in faces. They can be the ones who inherit the wind. Sorry, inherit the fortune. And she receives this mysterious box. She opens the box. I had to rewatch it because I was like, is all that comes out of the box smoke? They become possessed. They go on a kill crazy rampage. They're defeated when the box is defeated. There's a, a button at the end which teases a sequel, which very well could happen because Emmanuel Curvin's still alive, still kicking, not making movies, but still kicking. Honestly, if you go to IMDb, there is a listing for Rabbit Grannies too. It's being filmed in it. Well, it's just a listing. So it says pre-production, but it's said, it said that for a few years now. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe he'll come back and do it. You should find him on Instagram and go harass him. I hope so. And see, the thing is, too, with with these um, from the box where the smoke comes out of, it's from a disenfranchised member of the family that practiced black magic and they don't Mm -hmm. want him around. And he wasn't invited to the birthday dinner. So he gets his revenge by sending it uh, via this very old, creepy lady that, you know, is on par with the Hansel and Gretel witch um, to deliver it. So which I, I thought it was interesting. He only got 10 months in jail. So that was a very contemporary, very distinguished from our prison system where he would still be in there being profited off of by private industrialists. Anyone? Too real? No, no, I was going to say, if it, I mean, yeah, t- <laughs> 10 months in America, you'd be locked up for 20 years for possession of uh, one gram of marijuana. See, as Adam is clearly looking for his bong. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, do you like the ambiguity? It's just a box of smoke. Or would you have liked a little bit more mystery and explanation there? What I want to know is, does this woman just deliver like creepy demon boxes? I mean, is she doing Uber Eats? Does she work for Amazon? I mean, what edible arrangements? Know? Yeah, but uh, honestly, like, I think she's creepier than the grannies like that. That delivery lady, she's only in one scene. But God damn, is she creepy? Mm. And then even uh, now, the other thing, too, like looking at the cover of Rabbit Grannies, you'd expect them to just kind of be, you know, the old ladies like with with rabbit makeup but no they turn into like the demon alien hybrids with like freddy krueger nails Mm -hmm. and i understand because you can't really have ladies in their 80s running around with full makeup you know chasing family members you know it's it makes sense but uh, like we mentioned earlier i'd love to see if neca can get you know these two grannies uh you know made into like figures that would be totally awesome i was just gonna say these kind of remind me just very resident evil especially with this new uh the the village one coming out because the long claws on all the characters and that i thought that was really cool just when they were growing under the table, I thought that was a really awesome effect shot. I agree. But I was going to say, I really like the fact that the, all of the material, I like the fact that I was basically hoodwinked by this movie. I know I was critical of the rabid granny's name, but it certainly caught me off guard because I'm expecting you look at the cover, it just, they just look zombies and then they become scrotal demons. And I thought that was a really fun twist. So maybe that's kind of why it's not emphasized in the promotional materials, because I feel like even they're like drenched in shadow. And like you said, Doug, we're not tracking them. They're not doing a lot of physicality. So when they're there, they're kind of stationary and you're really looking at the effect that maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe I'm completely speculating. I don't know. I was not in Belgium anywhere. Yeah, this movie is just a lot darker than it lets on. Yeah, and I think that's where the uh, the mixture of the uh, music kind of comes in weird because like after the initial scene at the dinner table where, uh, you know, the lady gets her head bitten off, it kind of plays like, um, like, do, 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 do. Like it's playing like a, uh, like a, like a fancy children's rhyme, which it's, I never understood that. I'm like, hey, maybe the Belgians just have a weird different sense of humor. Because because after that, you think of like hearing that music, you think it'd be like gory, cartoony effects. But right after that, the grandma throws uh, uh, Alice right out the window and she dies a horrible death with like glass in her hands and her eyes. And then you get the grandma just kind of shaking off like 
like rubbing her two hands together like, oh, that job's done. Alice didn't even fucking do anything. She was the one that helped out the most in the house. Why the fuck did you kill her? Poor Alice. Alice probably would have cleaned the granny, like all the blood in the hallways. Alice is like, do you want me to clean this now? She was a great worker, man. She would have cleaned that all up before dawn. So shame on you, rabbit grannies, for killing your most uh, productive member of the team. Employee of the month. Mm-hmm. Cleanliness is next to godliness. And so clearly the demons could not adhere to having Alice going around tidying up. No, but that's a good point. Yeah, I guess they wouldn't want her cleaning up. I just didn't. It it was interesting that they're going after the family, but really they go after anybody because you think that they would let the workers go, especially if the other and they're all cousins, right? That was another thing that was confusing to me because they're calling them grannies, but they're not really their grandmother. They're their aunts. They're like aunties, yeah. Right. Aunts, so they're yeah. like rabbit tias or something, right? So <laughs> I don't know if I would call them grannies, but like, so how many uh, siblings did they have to have all of these these random family members that are only related to them as nieces and nephews, which I thought was interesting. But I don't know where I was going with that. I don't think that the gram- that the grannies, that the aunts or whoever, that they should have lived at the end. Like, I don't think they should have turned back. I think that they should have, like, came back as what they look like, but still be, like, you know, disemboweled and missing limbs and half full of holes and that sort of thing. I took that to be, like, a satire of a place of privilege. Look at the, the touchy uncle from the royal family. He fine. He's going to be alive forever. Nobody's going to hang him or guillotine him. And so it's basically like, hey, we're rich. We're just going back to being rich. Y'all can just leave us alone. I thought that was a kind of deliberate point. Am I? Did I read too much or too little? No, that's a great point. I didn't even think about it like that, but I agree. I definitely agree with that because, you know, the whole point is that they want their money, right? And I just think it's hilarious at the end or ironic the fact that at the end, they're still not even dead after all of this. So that kind of sucks for, not well, maybe not the lesbian because she's not related, but the poor mother that just lost her shit in the ambulance, like she at the very least could have inherited something, right? She lost her husband and her daughter <laughs> and her mom. Losing her husband, though, that ain't shit because that husband's oh fucked. Oh, my God, that guy. Like what? Like literally every man except for maybe save for the the uh, arms dealer, whatever the hell he did uh, with all of his guns. Like, eventually he did something right. But all of the men in that movie were just completely uh, useless to let the women and his son leave the room. Knowing that there's these, quote, rabid grannies running around that doesn't even, like, help them. He's like, I'm just going to stay here. Uh, no. Yeah, peace out, guys. <laughs> like, go out there with your wife. Like, I expect the priest to be the little bitch that he is, but not, you know, a father of two children and just lets his wife just go. Doesn't even. And his wife is way too hot for him, by the way. So. Yeah. <laughs> Word Only up. goes out there after everything's already happened. Like, come on. Anyway. All right, so I feel like we've hit most of the topics here. I'm pretty happy with this, so I think there's no better time in the world to go to my interview with one Lou Temple, who you might remember from such films as The Devil's Rejects, a few things, uh, maybe a little bit of a walking den, if you will. So enjoy my interview with Lou Temple. This is Slashers, at least the interview portion of the show, which I still don't know how to introduce. My name is Jake, and with me for the first time is my new friend Lou Temple. Lou, how the hell are you today? 
Oh, I'm doing great, Jake. It's so nice to be here. And thank you, all you Slasher audience, for being uh, with us today. Jake and I are excited to visit with each other and with you. So thanks for having me, man. So we've already talked, like I was saying, rapid fire conversation. We've had like 15 topics. We were talking about baseball right now. And I would love to ask you some questions because I delved ah. into your baseball through an acting role you had in baseball, which was with Longmire. And like, that's just so much because we talked about your voiceover and then you're working with Hank Azaria, who is Mr. Voiceover. Tell me about your love of baseball. When did that start? Uh, as a little boy, as you know, a lot of young children uh, get hooked on a passion that was mine. Baseball started uh, when I was six or seven years old. My grandfather took me down. It was what all the cool kids were doing because there was nothing else to do, thankfully. Yeah. No Xbox One? Yeah, no, it wasn't even up yet. There was none. I mean, I'm from the Sega, uh, Sega generation. I'm Hell from yeah. Atari. And so um, that wasn't as interesting for me as baseball. So I, I was hooked right away and started playing. And I found out, I think what I liked about it originally was that I could get better at it. Yeah. And that I got a lot of positive reinforcement when I improved. And so I noticed right away that, that you know, my grandfather and, and his friends and everybody were like, good job, Lou, really, you know, way to hustle out there. And I sort of liked that positive stroke. And so I recognized, wow, if I do a little better the next time, maybe it'll be even better. And so I recognized I could continue to improve through effort those 10,000 hours. Yeah. And that was something that fit into my DNA. It fit into my personality. So I, I really loved it. I played baseball all through little league, you know, and you go on and you kind of get into your middle school and they have a team and you make that team. And then you eventually end up in high school and playing varsity ball. And then it's time to make a decision and it was such a big part of my life that I was going to pursue it as a college player, which I did. I got a college scholarship and went Rollins, to Rollins right? College. There you go. Rollins, yeah. It's a small liberal arts school with a great baseball team. And then went out my junior year, drafted to go out with the Seattle Mariners to play. In fact, look, I've, I'm always kind of still go. got one of my bats from back in the day. Louisville Slugger. And, um, it's a Louisville Slugger. So I went out and played minor league ball and got traded to the Astros. And then at the end of my playing career, they finally figured out that I wasn't going to grow anymore or develop physically and that there were a lot of younger guys better than I was. But they liked me and they asked me to stick around and maybe take up coaching, which I did. Yeah. And then I recognized, well, that's good. I love coaching, working with young players, but. There's a lot of babysitting, too. You're really picking yeah. up helmets, Jake. So I started scouting, going around looking for players to become professional players, which meant going to high schools and colleges and beating the bushes, as it was called back then. And Did you do that for the Mets that. and the Astros? Yeah. yeah. So I went and did that a little bit for the Mets and then came back to the Astros. And then as I was telling you, the Astros said, well, you've got some snap you could come up here and be a decision maker in our front office. You could be an executive. And at that point I was, you know, a young man and with an expense account and a car Ooh. and a salary and living in Houston and in the, in the major leagues. And 
on my way to running a team, I, I, I'm convinced I would have been a general manager. And then I saw this girl with a nice pair of jeans walk into a building and I followed her into an acting class to chat her up for a date. Oh, yeah. And uh, there we go. And I saw these people down on stage and they were doing this thing. And I was like, there's my people. That's my my tribe. I can do that. And I was kind of bit at that point. Yeah, that passion. I didn't really understand what it was. I had never thought about it. I'd always been an outgoing person and rather gregarious, but I thought that I could be an actor. And when I grew up, unlike today, for us, we didn't have a lot of choices. There, you know, what we saw on TV was what they had on TV. Yeah. And and so I thought the six million dollar man was really the six million dollar man. I didn't know who the heck Lee Majors was. Yeah, all right. So I didn't know that they were there was actually actors. And I never thought about it very often. But at this juncture, seeing these people on stage having a lot of fun and getting that attention and the yeah. positive strokes, I was like, oh, I'll do that. I can do that. So I started to kick it around a little bit and dabble and I'm employed with a real job, you know, a job that anyone would want. Yeah, it's crazy. Your safety net is a goal for 90% of people. That's amazing. Yeah. And since so interesting. So Jake, what happens oddly is I'm working for the Astros. I'm moonlighting in acting class and I get a call to come down. This is back in the days of the Houston Astrodome. And a guy wants to meet me. The, the the owner of the club has something. And anytime the owner calls you, you better listen. Yeah, and of so course. he's there and I go down to the field and he said, please, you know, bring a, a glove. And I'm like, OK, so, you know, I always have a glove around, actually, you know, so bring a ball glove. And I go down there. And it's Charlie Sheen. OK. Yeah. And he's making a movie called. Um, Angels the in the Outfield. Oh no. Because you the were Chase. Okay. He's doing the chase, and but he's getting ready for Major League Two. There you go. And he needs somebody to work out with in, in, in his downtime to get, you know, get in shape. So he and I start hanging out and, and he's renting the Houston Astrodome at night. What? To yeah, to prepare for <laughs> this. Then he has a birthday party that I get invited to, and we're you know, we're, we're buds. This is before tiger blood and everything yeah. uh, way before that. And, <laughs> and I meet a bunch of his friends who are doing a movie for Disney, yeah. Irby, Irby Roth. And they say, Hey, why don't you come out and do angels in the outfield for us in San Francisco and Los Angeles? Cause you know, you're just going to be Charlie's buddy, but you could actually be, a, you know, a player for us. And so I took vacation from the Houston Astros. Wow. And I went and I had a lot of vacation accrued. And so I went to San Francisco and Oakland and here in Los Angeles. And we made Angels in the Outfield. And I was literally just a player on the Angels. I ended up with the A's. I got traded. I was kind of a bad guy. But during that time, the Houston Astros were sold. And they had new management. Well, the guy that took the team over was somebody who I knew who liked me, but he called me and said, hey, Lou, baby, his name was Bob Watson. He was a great player in his day and a good executive. And he said, uh, you don't have to worry about coming home too soon. You know, take your time. And I was like, "Uh oh, yeah. I know what that means. And so I did come home and he said, look, I've been watching you. I've been knowing you for a long time. You're a great baseball guy. But if you stay in this game, like, like, 
a lot of things, it's a lifer. You're never going to get out. So I'm not firing you, but I'm not rehiring you. And um, huh. I'm kicking you. I'm kicking you out of the nest. So I was upset. I was like, that's unfair. I'm, uh, you know, this is, this is not right. And so there was a strange baseball strike, a player issue at the time. So there was a hiring freeze, very difficult to get back into the game, but of all teams, the San Diego Padres who used to have be affiliated with uh, Rancho Cucamonga. Yeah. They called and they said, okay, we got a job. You can come down here and work as an assistant in the minor league scouting department. And then maybe, you know, after a couple of years, it all works out. You could run one of the departments. And I heard that, my, that guy's voice echo in the back of my mind. If you don't leave, you'll never leave. And you've got this other thing that's calling you. You should pursue it. And I turned the job down. Wow. Went and worked for, you know, a moving company and did garage theater and theater and just started building my chops. I went back to college, to Brooklyn University, Brooklyn College, to learn acting. And, you know, I've had two really amazing careers in baseball and acting. So. Yeah, because you strike me as a hugely mindful person. I've stalked your social yeah. media leading up to this. You're very self-aware, which is hard for a lot of people to do. And it's great that you're talking about incremental progress and everything, because I see in your hustle, one of my favorite things that you do, unlike so many actors, you have your Vimeo and you have a bunch of auditions up there. And yeah. you can see, your, you can tell your motivations, you can tell your different takes. You are always trying to improve, right? Yeah, I think that's the thing. Uh, where we started with the idea, one of the things I love baseball for the purity of what it is, but I also love it because physically for me as a slider guy, you know, 5'10", 170, 160, my best day, you could still compete by honing your skill set. And the same with, for instance, acting, gaming, music, Um, there's just there's there's things that grab you that you can develop. One of the great things about baseball was that I had to start to understand how to compete, what I had to do. So that made me very observant. I was very aware of the talent around me, of the of the situation around me, and the observation skill set that I developed at that point has always helped me in acting. Yeah. So I look at my you know, landscape and acting. And I recognize, well, I'm different. That's a good thing. Yeah. Or I'm not like, at first it was, I'm not like what they're looking for. And that's not a good thing. That's a hang up. That's a difficult thing. And I wish that I could impart on everybody that that is actually a good thing. Yeah. And being you is actually the only thing. And it's going to take you a long time. It is like, it's like, driving you when you get in a car you're scared as hell or whatever that fight or flight uh experience is it's like that until you realize oh they just want me they really just want lou they're not looking for adam banjo or they're not looking for axel they're just looking for lou to come in the room and be lou and who is lou and if that's who we like you know, we have a terminology, a buzzword that's almost going out of fashion now. What brand are you or yep. branding? There's going to be something that's going to overcome the branding. I don't know what it is just yet, but the, the kids will figure it out. But um, 
that branding is is essentially who you are and what you are. So I go into casting sessions and they'll literally say, what color are you? And you should have an answer. You should have an answer to what that is. If I said, Jake, what color are you? You should say, I'm teal. Okay. There you go. Very cool. Very smart, easygoing, comfortable, calming. That's your color. That's your brand. I'm more of a fire brand. I'm a yellow, a red, an orange. I'm going to get some things going. I'm going to I'm going to start some stuff, finish some stuff or 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 create some energy. Yeah. That's my thing. And so a casting office will go, "Okay, well we're looking for teal in this role. It's probably not you." But yeah. two episodes from now, we've got this guy and he's totally a fire color. There you go. Or, you know, Jake, we're um, we're looking for a real instigator in this role and you seem to be more of a uh, negotiator, a calmer, you know, so, so great. You know, your brand, you know, your color. Thank you. And so that's very serviceable, still maintaining who are you Yeah. and, and always who, what do you, what do you bring, you know, and, and you should bring you to the thing. But back in the day when I started acting was built around all things to all people. You know, it was the old soft shoe. I can do this. I can do that. Yeah, I can do any of it. And it's different today. You know, I don't know where the term came, work on your weakness. No one hires you for your weakness. Yeah. In my world. Of course. No one hires you like, you know, you don't have a very good British accent. You're exactly who we're looking for to do this British. (laughs) No one does that. All right. So I say work on your strengths and make them stronger yeah, perfect. and be who you are, be the better who you are. And that's probably going to serve you better than trying to be who you're not. And we spend a lot of time trying to be who we're not, even on Instagram, even our social medias where we're so excited about other people's vacations and foods and and cool clothes and cars and all those. Yeah. One thing about COVID that it's shown I think if you're observing, look at your neighbors and your friends and everybody was hurting. Everyone's hurting when we all stopped working. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, everyone's asking for help on filling out unemployment where an actor is actually really good at that. Yeah, right. They've had a lot of experience and you start to realize everybody's kind of similar. Everyone's sort of just one paycheck away from being in trouble. And I think there was a lot of tolerance of each other in their situations as opposed to uh, envy of everybody else. Uh, yeah. Oh, you have a great Instagram and all these followers, but you're coming to me to borrow money. Oh, I've, okay. Yeah. Uh, maybe you're not who I think you are. And I see you're, you're actually struggling with that. And this is okay. So I felt like that kind of evened our playing field out here a lot. Hugely. Yeah. With that type of thing. Anyway, I digressed a lot. Pardon me, Jay. I love it. Because I was, I was actually talking to uh, Gene Jones, who you work with on Texas Cotton. Love Gene. We were Love talking Gene. about people on their best day. Frankly, I don't give a fuck about anyone on their best day. I want you on your every day. And that's one of the yeah. things where having a regimented method, having an understanding of who you are and what your brand is, that's what's going to keep you consistent. So even if you're having a bad day, even if you're having an off day, that level of consistency is going to make your workmanship speak for itself. And also, we talked about the sense of competition in acting. I feel like a lot of people just misconstrue the point. Like acting is not frou-frou. Acting is incredibly intensive when it comes to the sense of competition. 
and the vulnerability. Because if you get turned down on a certain level, it's still you being turned down. It's not you, a baseball player. It's you, like the essence of your being, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So you have to be able to hack that level of disappointment, level of denial, yeah. abandonment, whatever issue, however you want to couch it. But you have to be okay with getting told no. And so you have to, you can do it analytically. So many no's equally yes. Like, you know what? I've got to go out and audition 25 times and be told no because I'm, uh, my numbers say that on 26, it's going to be a yes. Yeah. So I want to audition for seven crappy independent films, four crappy television shows, 15 commercials, be told no, all, uh, no on all of those. And when the Coen Brothers movie comes up at 26, I want auditioning at number 26. I'm, I'm laid up right where I want to be. Yeah. So in your, your, your hack, your biohack is all those no's are that closer movement to that. Yes. And you're trying to line up to the yes that you want, as opposed to any yes, like all of a sudden, Hey, you got a job and you're, you're wearing a bundle of grapes for a fruit of loom com commercial. Right. <laughs> you know, so like, Oh yeah, I got it. That's not the job. I Hot want. dog. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So you do have to be okay with the rejection factor and figure out how that is and know that they're selecting and it's a selection just like you have, as opposed to a rejecting, they're not rejecting, they're selecting. So you're probably perfect. They just selected someone else. I think if you go in and you present yourself in an audition as you wanted and you did the things that you wanted to do as best you could in the constraint of the, the time, the setting, the situation, that's a win. Yeah. That's, that's a W in your company's folder. And you, you've got to start to understand that and be okay with it. Because if not, you'll just crater. 100%. People seem to have this idea that like every single character needs to be a screen stealer. Think about how few Bronson pin shots in Beverly Hills Cop there are. It's incredibly few because sometimes they just need the guy to be there to be the foil, right? But then other times you need that. So sometimes you might just be literally too good. Sometimes you might not have the pizzazz, but if you've done your best, that's literally all you can do. It's a good thing too because... Because and it's also all that matters, you know, yeah. because you've got to live with you and your your work. And um, so you you've got to be able to put that character to rest and say, I get I honored it by presenting it how I wanted it presented and who I wanted it presented. And that's out of you know, that's out of my my hands. It's amazing too, Jake, when you start to if you ever and all these things come with experience. Yeah. These are all and unfortunately, you know, well, one thing that I find really interesting in observation, I kept working in the last several years with young people, really young people, 23 year olds. Yeah. Tyler, um, Russell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Essentially, my bosses, you know, they're 23 year olds and they're the leads of shows or movies. And I'm like, and they're so good. They were really good. Yeah. And I was thinking, how are they so good? Because I know what the, learning curve is on this thing and it doesn't just happen you know and and then i started to kind of research like the youtube world and influencers and instagram stories and the you know young people are on cameras all the time mm -hmm. all the time yeah. way more than i was ever you know uh, 
when you start out as an actor, the camera is a very foreign thing because you've been on stage for so long. You've been on. And so you see this piece of equipment in front of you and you're like, that's not another actor. What, uh, what's happening? I'm, I'm in a weird world, but I remember the first time I saw myself on a daily playback. I was like, why do I stand like that? Have I always stood like that? Has nobody told me I stand like that? What the fuck? Yeah. (laughs) Or you hear your voice and you go, oh, I hate my voice. Still hate hate it. it. I hate my voice. And but young people are on camera. They're on these these devices all the time. They're sending pictures. They know angles. They actually know their faces. They know their voice. They know how it sounds. The uh, two things that I always give advice for actors, read, read. I think when you read well, if you can read well literature, you speak well and read out loud so that you do hear your your voice. You should know what you sound like in presentation. And uh, and if you can, you can add on to that. Read out loud in front of a mirror. You should see what your face looks like when you speak. And I feel like young people, based on their postings, are quite capable of that. And so they've hacked shortcuts into the craft. And I give them a lot of credit for it. And what I think, though, is, and I'm not sure about this, the theory I have is that they're shooting stars, so they're very good at the skill set of camera work, camera technique, okay? Yeah. We're right here. Uh, you know, we're between first and third base. We're keeping it in the box. You know, we're not out here and, and doing and being distracting and and they're good at it. But the emotional content maybe isn't as developed it's very so fair. that their their careers maybe don't last as long. And our careers as auteurs, as an audience, don't last as long. We're yeah. here today, gone tomorrow on almost anything. You know, we're so binge watching and trend, you know, right. so used to be, used to be that we'd watch anything, Paul Newman, John Wayne, Robert Redford, Denzel Washington, anything they did. And today we're looking to replace Chris Evans as fast as we can, Yeah, you know, 100%. or Gal Gadot. And so I think that there's a certain amount of confidence in the writing because the writing's really good right now. Yeah. Me, but also, I'm just going to say what they wrote because it's very good. And I think there's a lot that can be layered into the subtext of what's written to make it even better or to hack it and make it interesting. And so if you if you investigate those opportunities, I think that's when you start giving your career length because uh, interesting. And also listening's really good. Some of the best guys I work with are amazing listeners yeah. in, in the scene. They're just so good. But I think there was a point I was going to make also, and then we've, I'm going down a lot of rabbit holes. I'm out in the desert with Johnny Depp on Lone Ranger. And he said, we're doing a scene. And he goes, you know, this is the, is the one time or the only time that this is ours. Like wow. this, you and I right now are doing this, but after you edit and give it to some technician and someone's going to upload it and someone's going to color correct it and sound design it yeah. and maybe a little more tweak and editing, it's all of theirs. Yeah. And it doesn't, bec- it's not you and you, you know, it's not you and I at all. And um, it started that way, but then we turned it over to everybody. So 
I keep that in mind. Yeah. I'm a little mindful of, of those moments. And you also did stage work. So like the ephemeral nature of stage where it's there and it's gone. Yeah. I really appreciate stage moments. Yeah. My favorite thing with what I do, interesting, you're, you're an attorney. You have some law background. I love discovery. Yeah. Okay. So, so discovery in, in my world is taking a character and building. I'm building a case for this character. Yep. So my discovery is uh, where does where does he hail from? Where does he come from? What was he like as a little boy? Where did things go wrong? Uh, what was his his home life? His upbringing? Uh, what's his education? All these things. And so I'm building this. And on the page, Jake, the you know between page one and ninety seven or one hundred and three, everything's there. It's the things that aren't there that I find fascinating in in this office and the things that I'm studying or looking for. Oh, look at this. I never knew I would have never even thought about this if I wasn't building here. And this is actually more interesting than my character. And so I, I love the discovery. I think that's attributable to the idea that we love a good game of hide and seek. I mean, yep. it's, it's called fishing, right? It's yep. not called, it's not called catching. And um, we love that. And, and I think that's why we love story time and stories yep. and, and we want to know. And so um, I really enjoy that actually more than the performance. Oh yeah. I like for this show, I enjoy the research. 10 times more than yeah. I enjoy the actual process. And like you said, especially the post-production, when I have to listen to my nasally voice, I want to stab myself in the throat. So just like yeah. you're saying, it's all that craft of it that I find so interesting. And what I love about talking to guys like you and Gene and you and Jason, like you get it. You get the work. It's not just, hey, look at me. I'm a movie star. It's I'm going to put it in and I'm going to prove I'm the best and I'm going to show you why. It's awesome. Yeah, I think when you look at our careers, you know, you look at, at Gene who's had a longer career than Jason or myself, or you look at Jason, he and I have a, you know, similar careers. Yeah. You recognize that there's a length and an evolution to our careers. Yeah. There's, there's a level of interest and, and diversity to the work. And, and, you know, we're still seeking different types of work. And so I think that that search keeps us reaching. Yeah. And I think it's hard when you get pitched into one of the things I'm proud of is though I have done a lot of uh, same work, I've done a lot of different work as well. And I've continued to take on challenging opportunities and I've swung for the fences and and missed a heck of a lot, but I've still swung and I always appreciate trying. And and I think that's what keeps me uh, vibrating and, and, and excited with it, you know, the ideas. Um, and, and I would say, I would say the same for someone like Gene for sure. So Gene's great because he's got an amazing tool, which is his voice. Yeah. And, and he's got, uh, he's just one of these guys that has levels that, that he can tickle and tame and tease at each moment and do the same with his audience. And so I recognize that he recognizes that he's capable of, of using it. Yeah. And we all have these 
bags of tricks, you know, these, these little tools in our toolbox that, that help us. And I think when you really know how to use them, they're great. One of my other favorite things about acting lately uh, is observing on set and recognizing that the person across from me is just as scared as I am. And I'm scared too. And there's something in, you know, there's something really alive about that, that yeah. we're, we're scared. It, I, I, I've sat across from Denzel Washington and I'm like, Oh shit, you're there's fear right there. Yeah. Now that fear is very exciting. Yeah. It's not fight or flight fear, but there's a moment and I see it in everybody, regardless of what level of experience. And I'm really interested in it. And what that is in the eyes, that little hint of you're afraid. Mm -hmm. That's okay. I'm here to take care of you and I hope you take care of me too. Yeah. And that's cool. And uh, I really enjoy that. That's a very self-reflective thing. I mean, you're very yeah. astute in pointing that out because a lot of people take fear and they just, they treat it as a bad thing. And not just because I'm a horror fan and I'm obsessed with like, like fear is a motivator. Fear is, is the thrill because if there is no consequence, you haven't experienced anything. What's the difference? Like I'm just furting in the bowl, sitting and sniffing fucking flowers, unless there's a consequence. The consequence is the car crash that could happen. Or you know somebody sawing your face off in a desert or something. Like you have to yeah. have consequence, and if you don't have that, you don't have gravity. You don't have realism. You don't have truth. It's just kind of a thing, right? Yeah, you, there's the stakes have to be there, and you know, for a film, there's just such a short time to raise those stakes and to resolve those stakes that you've got to land all those things. And I think that some of the people that I've had the opportunity to work with. Are exceptional. So let's speak to Rob Zombie, for instance, great storyteller. Yeah. He recognizes what stakes are. He's uh, he's a fan like yourself. Oh, yeah. Of the genre. Uh, he's a cinephile. He loves all movies. He's different than Tarantino, who I, I got the opportunity to work with. But once upon a time, in Hollywood. Um, did you, was yeah. your character named after you in that movie? Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. I was like, I was like, really, <laughs> you know, really, Quentin, you want to name it Land Pirate Lou? And he's like, yeah, I love Land Pirate Lou. <laughs> why, why wouldn't you? Why? I mean, I couldn't write anything better. And I'm a pretty damn good writer. And I'm like, OK, well, if you say that, then what? Who am I? To, you know, yeah. and um and that's a guy who puts thought, like meticulous thought into every syllable of every, everything, every song. It's amazing. So, there's times, and so you're on set. Uh, I'll get back to Rob in a minute. You're on set with Quentin, and he could write you a monologue any given minute. Yeah, he's got a, a legal pad and a pen, and he could just rip you off 16 sentences that he wants you to digest and spit out right then and there. You can't go back to your trailer and learn it. So you have to show up every day, ready to be surprised and to. Like the teacher's going to call on me. Yeah. It's that thing. That's law school, and right? Exactly. Yeah. It, and it's great because it removes the routine. It removes something crazy is going to happen. And Quentin's going to, to head that up. And, um, you know, and when he, he knows everybody's part cause he's done them and he's written them and, yeah. you know, he'll tell you like, no, this stuff's great. Just, just say this. Because you'll always try to add ad lib something, and he'll be no, no, no. It, it's this this shit writes itself, and I'm like, actually, Quentin, you wrote it, but okay, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right, you're right. And so he's the master of 
his domain and yeah. all roads lead to Quentin. He's the, he tells a story in between every take. He's a huge presence on set. I mean, when Pacino was there, I got to watch that that day. Al Pacino was a huge presence, but the rest of us, whether it was Leo DiCaprio or Brad Pitt or Kurt Russell, or, you know, you just go on and on down the line. Quentin's the star with Rob. It's different. Rob, takes kind of a back seat yeah. to the to to the task and lets things happen until they don't work and he's really good at understanding this works this doesn't work and if they don't work he's not there to fix it yeah he's there to change okay it's my fault i got the camera set up in the wrong place yeah it doesn't work let's change the camera change the lens we'll shoot it again and that's his approach. Now, he knows intensity incredibly well. He knows the fear factor that you're talking about, and he understands what that is. And um, I think he's really come into his own as a storyteller. Yeah. And also, when he started out, he wisely put his work in the hands of some really seasoned professionals, i.e. Sid Haig. God rest his soul, yeah. Bill Mosley, oh. uh, Ken, Ken Foray, William Forsyth. So so when I showed up on the set of The Devil's Rejects, actually, it was a table read. I didn't have any exposure experience to that genre. Yeah. I didn't understand that it was a genre that required a certain intrusion of personal space. Yeah. And I started using my baseball skill set background to watch Bill Mosley and Ken Foray and, and Sid Haig work. And I started to recognize slowly but surely they were moving in and inching in on my space in with every line and every word until it became really uncomfortable. They're right yeah. there. And it was so subtle. It could just be a lean. It could just be a, a posture but it was brilliant. And I go, that's the intimidation that they're getting out of their characters. It's, it's a skill set that I hope isn't lost on the younger generation, but it's amazing with these professionals. And Rob had that in this all-star team. And uh, I learned a lot and I, I was so grateful to be there. That's a great story in and of itself. So yeah. I'm Monica Mickelson is the casting director. She had cast me in a movie called Serving Sarah, which uh, I didn't end up doing, but she remembered me and brought me in to read for The Devil's Rejects. I'd never read anything like that. In the first page of the script, there's a giant dragging a naked girl through the woods. Which was actually filmed in my hometown. Some of my friends got to go be gophers and bring food to the set, which is amazing. But keep going. Sorry. That is amazing. I'm sure they saw a lot. Yeah. And I read this script and was horrified. Yeah. I've never read a script like that. It, all the details were there on the page. And so I go in and uh, I'm, I'm going into audition and Rob's not there. He has this humility factor that he's embarrassed that somebody would be doing performance in front of him. He doesn't feel like he's of, you know, that caliber, or that degree that you should perform in front of him, you know, and it, it embarrasses him. So he, he does it on tape with the casting director and I'm sitting there and there's Jeremy Davies, who I love. I love his work. There's Steve Zahn, who I loved at the time. Yeah. So I go in and I come to find out they're reading for Adam Banjo. And I'm like, holy shit, this is, I can't believe these guys are, you know, 
wow, I'm in good company, at least in the audition. And then I go to Austin. I get a call from Monica. Hey, Rob really likes you. And I'm like, oh, okay. Is there anything you want me to do different? Uh, nah, nah. Just He just wants to have a phone conversation with you. So he calls me and I talk to him. And I didn't know Rob Zombie. It's other than White Zombie, right? Yeah. And I was okay with his music-ish. I wouldn't say they were the you know, my go-to workout music, but yeah, right. they are for a lot of, well, he is for a lot of people. I get it. And um, then Monica calls and says, it looks like it's going your way. And I started to really kind of get nervous and I don't know why, but I called a friend of mine, an actor named Walton Goggins, who had done house of a thousand corpses played the deputy with one of my favorite scenes in that movie where Otis has him at gunpoint in execution style and the camera spins up into the air. Oh yeah. And I called Walton. I said, Walton, Walton, Rob zombie might hire me for the devil's rejects. And I'm, I'm, you know, what am I going to do? I'm a good Christian boy from the South and I'm going to work for this devil worshiper. uh, (laughs) Which is funny when you think Goggins ends up being in righteous gemstones. So keep going. (laughs) Yeah, He's like, you're an idiot. He said, do yourself a favor. If you're lucky enough that Rob offers you the job, take it because it's going to be great work. It's going to be creative. It's going to be fun. It's it's you're going to be proud of it. And more than that, you're going to have a friend in Rob Zombie who's great. And yeah. truer words have never been spoke. And so it was great. And I I learned from some really incredible people uh, who who have been fast friends all the way along. I got to work with Jeffrey Lewis, who was my partner. Jeffrey had a business card that said Clint Eastwood's best friend. That's awesome. (laughs) Every which way, but loose movies, you know, and he had story after story and they were so good. You know, when you work with the lead, always put your, your hand on his shoulder when you talk to him that way, they can't cut you out of the movie. (laughs) It's just great stuff. Yeah. So that was just such a delight to work. And Sherry was really young. And, and inexperienced at the time as yeah. an actor, she was just finding her chops. So she was getting exposed to all these really great, talented pros. And, and you were watching her learn because by the time we did 31, she was an old pro. Yeah. And so it, it's been great watching the evolution of Rob. I've always felt like he could do whatever he wants. I love that he's maintained his audience yeah they're loyal yeah and he's never and he really could have branched out and done big studio movies for a lot more money and he just doesn't i think he doesn't want to dismiss his audience to i think he's really he's really loyal to them actually i think that's very true because you're not getting the like it's not homogenized it might not be everybody's cup of tea but it has right. its audience and that's who it's meant for. It's not meant to be the lowest yeah. common denominator. And I think it can be alienating, but it can also, when you find it and you're into it, like Devil's Rejects, I love that movie still. And some people have like yeah. poo-pooed it in later years. I'm like, I don't understand if, if it's not your style, that's fine. But I like the kind of smarmy rhetoric that comes around. It's, it's so unique in that way. I find that what's great, we didn't have a lot of time to make it, but we took a lot of time to make it. And I don't know what I mean by that, but everything was nuanced and and we paid particular attention. And just at that table read, when when Sid Haig sat down and Bill Mosley and Forsyth and Foray and the words started to come out, it was like, oh, wow, 
the bar is really raised high. These guys have just brought it in a table read. Yeah. And we, we all better. And so most everybody in the movie has an arc in there and, and we're invested as an audience in the arcs, even, even of a lady that gets stabbed in the back, that's trying to help somebody, you know, Mary Warnoff. Yeah. On the road, you kind of see her life all the way and all the characters that, the guy that um, that's the chicken fucker, you know, the guy selling Rhode Mike Island Berryman, Yeah, boy. Yeah, easy. I mean, so I just think that was so special. But it takes it takes a team of everybody pulling on that side of the rope and and having no time but taking time. You yeah. know, it's hard to explain. And so I I, uh, I think that movie is is a classic. I'm grateful that Rob let me run with Adam Banjo that wasn't on the page. I was trying to build something where, you know, he was a lot of bravado and all talk. And then when the shit hits the fan, he puts his wife's dress on and then he's got to go out in the desert and have one last hero's moment fighting for his life. And he goes down, you know, swinging, calling for his best friend, Roy, who's dying. You know, it was kind of like the perfect arc. Yeah. And I told Rob, he's like, well, if you saw someone get executed in your, you know, in front of you that you knew, uh, I said, I, I'm sure I'd vomit. And lo and behold, next thing I've got a set uh, props person with a book, you know, offering me choice of a chunky clam chowder oh, or, <laughs> in uh, the desert. <laughs> yeah. Or chunk, or chunky potato, which, which do you want to use? And I'm like, oh man. And, and take after take. And when Otis is cutting my face off, you know, Bill Mosley's got this long hair and we've got to do takes and they're, they're just pumping so much blood through me. Your neck, Wayne yeah. Toth. And I'm spitting blood in Bill's face and it's in his eyes and it's burning. Then they've got to wash his hair between every takes to get the blood out. And he's so mad at me and I'm mad at him. So the friction was, was right. And oh, yeah. it was terrible and it smelled terrible. It was hot as hell. And uh, it was just perfect. And it all I'm, I'm really proud of the Devil's Rejects and and, uh, and everybody's effort in it. You know, and Halloween, Rob goes out and he works for the Weinsteins and he has a bigger opportunity, obviously, and a franchise. And and I think, you know, I, I like his movies. I like his Halloween takes, you know, and so I like how he tried to, to mix it up in, from each of them even still. I think he gets I give him credit like I, I've. Just like I said earlier, as far as things not being a cup of tea, the thing I always liked about Michael Myers is the fact you don't know. And the fact right. that Robin forms, that's just never going to be for me. I, I still right. think that they're fascinating movies. And I, 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 another thing, I think they're unjustly maligned because obviously, obviously I'm not the target audience. It's the person who wants the backstory. So I can't sit there and just trash it. But I always try and find the good in every movie because I always look at movies like a merit badge system. Like, yeah. even if it sucks, I've seen it. I can put it in my little uh, sash and move on to the next one. Yeah. And, so, and there's something in it that you might have gotten, even yeah. if it's just like, don't do that again. <laughs> well, <laughs> plus the imagery with you in the Halloween film, that mask is amazing. And so I always associate you with that scene because obviously his his face isn't emoting. You're yeah. reacting to it. And it's like, that's such an informed experience. And it's such a leap. I love it. It was part. really fun because, uh, and so. I had known Danny Trejo and we had worked together in, in the devil's rejects and I'd been around and we'd done a couple other movies. Actually we'd done two or three other movies. So I knew Danny pretty good. I just moved to echo park. 
which is uh, very uh, Latin, uh, yeah. you know, kind of a Latin cultured neighborhood. And uh, Danny took me home one day from set. I said, would you come over to my neighborhood and let the Hefe's know, you know, that this, this, you know, gringo's okay. And he did. And he's a God. I'm yeah, not kidding you. For and sure. So I got the stamp of approval. So that was cool. But I really would spend a lot of time visiting with Danny and talking about his background because he and I were working in together and Robin wanted me to be the jerk and Danny to be the sweetheart in this case. Yeah. So I was really racist in the, in the movie about against the Latino culture, really pushing that card. And Danny was telling me about when he was incarcerated, that when you went to the bathroom, you would take your trousers off all of them, including your underwear and hang them up. Uh, because you didn't want to get caught with your pants down. That's where the term comes from, getting caught with your pants down. Someone comes in, wants to shiv you or has a, you want to be able to run or move or fight. You don't want your pants. And so I was like, yeah, of course, that makes so much sense. I'm going to do that in this scene where I'm, you know, got my pants down around my ankles and Michael Myers catches me because of that. And and so... (laughs) so that was just so great. And it was good experience. And Tyler is such a, physical presence he's yeah. so big and he's light on his feet and he, you know he can pick you up and it was it was a lot of work uh obviously there's a rape scene there oddly it's so bizarre because the weinsteins decided it was very uh, obviously alienating it was offensive and perhaps going to alienate the female audience a rape scene mm-hmm. and it's it's harvey weinstein uh, as it turns out right you know? yeah and, uh, <laughs> that didn't age well <laughs> And so, uh, so they just went to Rob and they go, can we do something else? And Rob's like for a million bucks. And they're like, okay, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so Rob was able to get, so it was a, for the theater release, it was a little different escape for Michael Myers, but on Rob's cut, the director's cut, he yeah. left the rape scene in, which was a lot of work because it's not pleasant work. It's, you know. And being with Malcolm McDowell, Malcolm was talking, you know, I got to spend time with him and I've got to do this rape scene. It's unpleasant. And we really have to, you know, commit. And Malcolm's like, well, yeah, you have to commit. You know, if your job's to play Hitler, then you're going to commit to right. Hitler. You know, it's your job. You have to honor your job. So that was great. You actually um, got to produce Malcolm in uh, Time Crafters, right? Yes. Uh, I, I love Malcolm as a person. And then I, I love his his talent. And so I, I'd been sniffing around the script for years and I just couldn't make it happen. It couldn't make it happen. And finally we got some money to make it happen. And uh, I've always been a fan of Goonies. Yeah. I'm sure you are. Of course. And I, I just wanted something adventurous for the kids with time travel and pirates and, you know, the pirate I've worked for Gore Verbinski and the pirate stuff is great. It's a huge, that's a, that's a behemoth, but I just wanted to make a pirate movie in, you know, that was available for all of us, like, you know, kids that are still kids and time travel. Yeah. So time crafters kind of put that together and uh, Malcolm was kind enough. Uh, I had asked him to come in and play our villainous captain Lynch and he's great in it. We're just finishing up a sale. So we're looking at being out this summer. It's awesome. Be a perfect summer, summer movie. Eric Balfour is sort of our Errol Flynn, our, our swashbuckler, our handsome leading man, and Denise Richards is our ingenue. 
And so it turned out, okay, I'm really excited. It's really about five 12 year olds is what the movie's about. And they're great. Our kids are really good. That's and awesome. So I, I like kids movies because they were important to me. I'm sure they were important to you. Yeah. And we just need more of them. And there, there's actually really great kid content. I should much better than when I was a kid. For sure. Right. Honest. Don't you feel ripped off? Jesus, I watch yeah. kids cartoons now. I'm like, you should be so lucky. Yeah. I mean, you know, and the stuff that we watched, I will show my daughter and she'll go, I, I can't watch this. Yeah, like, right. I, I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. I, I, I see now that it's awful. <laughs> it doesn't hold up. Yeah. It, uh, but, but for my childhood, it was, it, it was everything. Yeah, for sure. And you ended up working in animation when you did a lot of voiceover for anime in the nineties. That was in, like, I looked at your resume and I'm like, half of these, I can't pronounce. This is amazing. Yeah. Well, try dubbing some of them. So this is really interesting. <laughs> This company called ADV in mm -hmm. Houston, Texas, where I'm an actor, I'm doing theater, I'm doing industrial films for, for small companies like Compaq. Uh, they weren't so small, but I'm doing the odd uh, independent film in Austin, Linkletter. I'm doing whatever I can just to stay busy, and I'm doing really well, voiceover on radio. And this company called ADV had the thought to purchase Japanese titles and to dub them in English in their little studio. The problem was it was, they had to match lip, these lip flaps. Yeah. And so in translation, like old speed racer style. Yeah. Oh, it was <laughs> unbelievable. So they just needed actors who had at least command of their voice, you know, at least the capacity to, turn a phrase. And so I got to do a lot of those Spike Spencer, Amanda Lee, Jason Douglas. Yeah. I think I actually invited Jason, my, my, my brother in arms to come and do that with us. And he's had an incredible voiceover career as well. Amazing. And, uh, and, and so we did that and we were paid nothing. You know, we spend six hours and do get a hundred bucks, you know, oh. and, and but think we were acting and be very happy to do it. And it was so much work, but but it was fun. And now it's a it's so big, the business of anime and the voiceover world is so huge. And it's such nice work. The few times that I get to do it, I enjoy it so much. Yeah. We forget how powerful our voice is as an instrument. Intense, um, right? I watched the other night Rango, which I got to do. And you did the video game, which don't forget, I'm going to definitely come back to video game work. Keep going. I love I love that movie so much. We won a, an Oscar, by God. It's an amazing and, movie. Uh, it's amazing. It's, it's very cinematic. It's yes. shot like a real film. It's got a lot of adult humor, a lot of adult concept. It's got big. One of my favorite lines for any movie that I've ever been in is in Rango. No man can walk out on his own story, you know, and I just think it's so profound. And I really, really enjoyed. Uh, I got to do Mr. Ferguson yeah, so story. and also Sergeant Turley, the turkey with the arrows through the eye. That's so good. And so I modeled those voices after my youth. Uh, I used to listen to an album on the record player, record of an album from Disney called Robin Hood. I would hear this album and there was a guy named Andy Devine 
that played, um, no, pardon me, Pat Buttram. Played, he played the sheriff of Nottingham. Yeah. Oodle lolly, oodle lolly, golly, what a day. And that always had, I, it was just music to my ears, literally. And then. Um, and you got to love I, that voice juxtaposed with the character design of this big hulking wolf and this like <laughs> shrill voice. I love it. Yeah. And then the, there was a show called Petticoat Junction, of all things. And it had this Uncle Joe in it. Uncle Joe sort of had this rough voice and he was, uh, and so that was the the other voice. And it was just so much fun and it was incredible. Again, Johnny Depp, uh, Gore Verbinski, Manning the Helm, huge, uh, huge. We, we literally acted out every scene so that the animators could model our characters after our you know our gesticulations and it was beautiful and having the chance to work with uh with johnny and abigail breslin and and isla fisher and bill nye and ray winstone and and uh ned Beatty, as a matter of fact which was great i was just so fun stephen root and um and so i i i do enjoy voiceover as well I, i i've always thought it was a a lot of fun and it's a craft. It's very competitive, like everything else. Oh yeah. And then, so you also does a, a smidgen in the video game world. Uh, yeah. How is that by comparison? You know, the video games are always about being active with the user. Yeah. And so it's sort of call and response. You're advancing what's about to happen. It feels a little less organic. Cause you're queuing. Than, yeah. Yeah. Than necessarily what a film or a movie might be, but I've done a couple of mocaps and that's very interesting as well. And uh, I think, you know, you've got to, you've got to keep your, your voice protected because there's all typically in the video games I do, there's quite a bit of yelling yeah. and screaming blow your, your, your kill zone and stuff. Yeah. Way. But uh, yeah, I like video games and, and they're, I mean, it's incredibly busy market and they've, they're so successful. Jesus. Especially in 2020, most, right? Our, yeah, it's our most successful medium, really. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. And so I've taken up a lot more of your time than I ever thought I would. And thank you for being so accommodating. I have oh, to ask my, you. My, please. So I don't know many people who know Woody Guthrie. And I see that you're a fan as well. What do you think he would think of 2021 and 2020? Well, I think Woody Guthrie would find a way to rationalize through equalizing so Woody yeah. Guthrie might come up with the idea of uh, at the end of the day we all have hearts and lungs and brains and physically you know if we're getting really down to it we're all the same yeah. regardless of what we have and what we don't have the haves and have nots but we all actually have a lot of the same things and the things that you say you don't have you actually do have and Woody might focus on us focusing back on what we do have as opposed to what what we're arguing about what we don't have we don't have our way we don't have our desires we don't have our guy in office we don't have justness or rights um but what we do have is we we do have air to breathe and we breathe it the same way um and i think he might try to level that playing field or level the the equation of equality. 100%. And, uh, yeah. And not focus so much on the don't as we do, you know, happy is as happy does. Yeah. And so, but he'd probably coin it in a really dark kind of a, a 
you know, a, a sort of morose picture of life, Southern side, Hank Williams, senior style, right. Tom, Tom Waits, you know, maybe we need them to come up and give us their two cents a little bit more. Yeah, the struggle and the strife that we all go through, I think oftentimes people want to act like their suffering is so unique unto them. And that's not to you know marginalize anybody, but people have suffered throughout. And I think that especially songwriters like Woody, I mean, through living through the fucking dust bowl and then being able to write a song like this land is your land, this land is my land, you know, yeah. a, a very uniting person, even though this is a guy who was on the fringe when it comes to society at the time. I mean, it's just beautiful. And I know that this is completely tangential to a horror podcast, but Anybody who I can get to talk to me with, about Woody Guthrie for more than two seconds at a time is a friend of mine. So I had yeah. to. Yeah. And then, you know, and I think that's not an easy thing to do. You know, I I think there was a time where we looked to that person or we we gave that person our confidence in and, and we've lost a little bit of that. So you know, Bob Dylan got to be our voice for a while and, and speak to that. And, and John Lennon, for sure, in, yeah. in some form or fashion. But there's a theory, I think it's called the Superman theory, where when you throw something at someone so much, it's like Bobby Fisher, you know, searching for Bobby Fisher. Yeah. They, they have to go away. Superman had to go away. He can't take it anymore. I feel like we've sort of lost that with our troubadours. They, they've gone away, yeah. you know. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind and the wind's not blowing. That's the thing. But maybe it is in a different form and we're just not listening. I you think know, that's maybe, very true. Maybe it is in our rap music. Maybe it is in our Latin music. Maybe it maybe it's there and exactly. we're not listening because we're so behaviorally and, and we, you know, we've got to modify and adjust and that that probably helps us. So um, maybe the answer's in us. I completely agree with that. And we, I talked briefly with Jason, like you could create the best movie ever. You can write the most beautiful, true song ever but with the volume of media we have nowadays. If nobody ever hears it, did it ever even happen? And that's something yeah. that's got to drive you crazy. But Three falls in the woods. I think it it is, but you'll know. And if, as long as you know, and your heart knows that you're putting out towards that, then I think you, you must keep going and you, and you will. It's easy to be frustrated or disappointed, but that's that's where they want you. You yeah. know, it's when you that's where the guy behind the curtain, he he wants you to be confused and frustrated and, and looking for the ruby slippers. So go out and find them and then bring them back and go, I got them. What now? And then he has nothing to do but pull back the curtain. So I, I think that's the task. There you go, man. This was an amazing time. And, you know, one of the ways that you avoid getting your content lost is by hustling. And you hustle on social media better than most that I've ever seen. Can you tell my friends and followers where they can find you and support you? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. I'm uh, I'm definitely, I'm out there on Twitter. I, I'm Lou Temple Actor. When we did The Walking Dead, they asked us to get involved with Twitter. And at that time, we didn't know anything about it. And I'm talking about Norman Reedus and myself and 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 Andrew Lincoln, nobody knew anything about it, really, Twitter at that time. So we, uh, I didn't look, Norman either, for very original names, Lou Temple actor. I do, uh, I have a Facebook page. I think it's Lou Temple. It's, it's a fan page, but I get on and, and engage. You know, interestingly, my Instagram has been disabled. I saw that. 
it got hacked. Yeah. Uh, somebody fished me because people reach out like yourself and find me and I open up a link. And before I knew it, I lost my page. That person then was phishing other verified accounts. And I think Instagram for a moment gave me my account back and now they disabled it. So either they're going to re reinstate it or they're not. I doubt I will go back to open up another Instagram. Yeah. I had an account just completely disappear and trying to get through to a human being and being like, you won't. it's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. You won't. So, and that's, that's the point of that, 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 um, guy behind the curtain is never really going to be a guy behind the curtain. And I have this thing called Patreon, which is a subscription website. What I do is I try to engage people in telling stories. So I'm trying to get people to write stories. And if they come on to my page, we're going to, we're going to actively talk about your story and start to write the script that you wanted to write and see where we can get. And you're going to write some pages and I'm going to write some pages and we're going to put stuff up and, and see where we can go. And it's five bucks a month. And I put a lot of, um, you know, behind the scenes and, and, or, uh, auditions, as you said. And so, um, that's out there. And then IMDB, you can always see what I got coming down the pipeline, the old IMDB, Lou Temple, right? You have been hustling. You have like six things in development right now. So I'm very excited to see what's coming for you. And if you ever want to come back to you know, promote Please. any of that stuff, I'm happy yeah. to have you. Uh, let's stay in touch because I'd love to. And, uh, and, um, and thank you for having me. And I, I look forward to our, our next visit. And, uh, uh, and let's enjoy this weather as best we can. Yeah, exactly. You stay cool, my friend. And thank you very much. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you, everybody, on on Slashers. And um, it's a good world, so be part of it. I love that. All right? And now that I've gotten Lou out of the way, God damn it, I have to say, he was one of my all-time favorite interviews I've ever done in any genre, because those of you may know, I used to do some bullshit reporting back in my ute. One of easily the most mindful people ever, and as you can tell from the interview, he hit technical difficulties, he never took it out on me, he was incredibly accommodating with his time. I love him. I will follow everything he does from here on out, and he always has a home here. And since I've already forfeited so much of the time of my show to Lou, I might as well do the same due difference to our friends at Damn That Scary. So here's what they thought about Rabbit Grannies. Damn That Scary. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Micah from Damn That Scary. And this time, yes, I am joined alongside my two co-hosts, Will and Greg. We're going to talk about rabid grannies. Oh man, those grannies, they sure are rabid, aren't they, boys? hey Hello. What's up, Slasher guys? What's going on, bitches? Great to be here. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's... <laughs> Fuck. Damn, that's right. scary. Hold on, I'm hitting... Ooh, well, hello there, Slasher Boys. Aren't I just Randy, little rabbit granny? <laughs> yes, this is the damn that scary crew. I'm Micah. I'm joined alongside Will and Greg. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Son of a bitch. Grandma got into the liquor what again. The fuck? <laughs> yes, she did. And I am just drinking away and my Sambuca. Graham. And I'm going to be so. What? Graham. What? Right. What? 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 Sh- shut the fuck up. Oh, oh, geez, sorry. Hey, Slasher guys, how's it going? Will, it's, you uh... get the kettle prod, I'll get the sedatives. We'll take care of this. Got it. No, no, not the net. Uh, 
Guys, what's going on? Uh, yes, Troma Month is continuing. We're going to give you a really quick review here of Rabid Grannies. Uh, Greg, Rabid Grannies. Now, I know you were saying earlier about your, your favorite thing about the movie is that the two grannies that get possessed by that weird box thing that you love the fact that it kind of looks like the demons from Demon Wind. And I think that is hilarious and a great comparison there. What were your thoughts on it Rabid Grannies? quite astute of me, I must say. Quite astute? <laughs> <laughs> that was an original thought <laughs> um, that I had. Uh, Will, how'd you feel about Rabbit Grannies, man? I actually really liked it. Uh, my favorite scene is the, uh, the the scene when they're in the jeep and the late and the, and the, the and home girl gets like smashed into the grates of the fucking um, of the fence. It was a good time. It was fun. It was go, a lot of fun. Go yeah. with the, the long fingers and the poop filled diaper. Yeah, the poop filled diaper. <laughs> so much poop. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be a trauma movie without some poop. Let me tell you something. This had all of my favorite trauma highlights. Mm -hmm. It had the poop. It had the blood. It had the tits. It had Lloyd Kaufman. Lloyd uh, Kaufman wasn't in the movie. It had a big fat guy. There was, there was a big um, fat guy. I think there was some pee. There was I'm some pretty puke. sure that big fat guy was also Harry Potter's uncle walking around like, oh, this is preposterous. These grannies don't exist. Where's this old mass hysteria? I'm going to prove it right now. And then he comes back in the room like, oh, no, they do exist. Oh, heavens. Oh, I got my shit all in my knickers. Yeah, yeah right. the fat guy played Hagrid. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> 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 all this movie needed was that other fat guy from the trauma movies yeah. that we talk about a lot i mean they eventually cut him and they they cast the other guy who's you know way better that's what all this the, the, the british fat fuck version of him oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh we i uh, like the damn that scary guys we give this movie uh, i i i'm giving i am gonna give rabid grannies uh four out of five scaries okay i'm gonna i'm gonna give it four point five out of five scaries there you have it gregory I was more impressed than both of you, I think. So fucking five. Shit. Whoa. Out of five. There weren't that many tits in it. There was at least one saggy one. Yeah. It yeah. Was, no, it wasn't saggy. It was a nice, there were nice boobs. Can I be honest with you for a second? Yeah. That's kind of my thing. Okay. Oh, so, you like the slopes? Honestly. You like to go skiing? If I only see the one, that's, that's worth two to me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what. A that's what uh, I always told my grandma. One of the other things that I just love, so I know we just did our races, but one of the other things I love so much about this movie is that it doesn't really hold back in the sense that, like, the grannies, they, like, physically dismantled their granddaughter. They, yeah. I love the scene where they throw the granddaughter's foot down the stairs and they just, <laughs> everyone realizes they're just so effed in the A. Um, they're incredibly agile for geriatrics. Oh, yeah, and just, just snapping necks and cashing checks. Uh, but the one thing that ab about the movie I don't like is that it is like an hour and a half long. I think it's less than an hour and a half long, but it does drag somewhere in the middle there. And it feels a lot longer than it is. It starts off fun. I like the introduction of the characters. I uh, I, I like the way the, the movie flowed. Uh, I like the uh, the buildup. I love a movie with good buildup. And then finally, when they get possessed and they're starting to, to, to just F everything up, it drags. And it drags, and then occasionally it picks up like, okay, this is awesome, cool, we get a really sweet kill, then it drags again. I, I feel like there was a lot of hoopla in the middle there that could have been hoopla, hoopla, hoopla. It could have been, uh, it could have been cut out. But I mean, that's my only grievance of the movie, uh, guys. You have any any grievances or anything like that, or is it? I think you guys are on the same page as me. Mm, could have used more diapers. Okay, okay, more diapers for the grannies. Yep. I mean, I wouldn't mind another, another titty or two. I mean, we all would have liked another titty or two. You know, now that he mentions it. You know? Yeah, just like pop, pop them titties out. 
pop them titties. Pop them titties. Pop them titties. You know, a, yeah. a comic, a comedic scene where the dentures came to life would have really, uh, really tickled my fancy. Oh, even yeah, dentures yeah. flying out of uh, the the rabbit granny's mouth coming at you—that yeah, would have been a lot of fun. Know, yeah, that would have been biting some kid. Yeah, unfortunately, that did not happen. Uh, but what did happen was j- just what we got, and it was a good time. Yes, what? it was. Guts, grandmas, birthday cakes, suits of armor. Uh, Jeep crashes. And a bunch children's of birthday parties. Yeah. Children's birthday parties. Soil ch- drawers. Did you <laughs> did you watch this movie, Gregory? Twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, I I guess we just got one more thing to say other than our tagline, "Keep it spooky," and that is. Tro March, 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 Tro March. Spooky. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Slasher Boys, back to you. Gentle folk, we are back with our own show. How are we wrapping up this episode? Doug, do you have any closing remarks on Rabid Grannies? Yes, I definitely want to say that if you are first getting your toes wet with trauma, this is a great, um, it, it's different from the Lloyd Coffin produced stuff. And another thing too, I was going to mention is that uh, it's it's dubbed, but it's I feel like it's dubbed by the same people because there's just a, uh, when they try to translate things over to English, it doesn't really go right. Like there's a scene where uh, where the granny has her guts out and she's playing with it. And then Radu kind of goes over. He's like, man, this is crazy. I'm going to get out of here. And she throws her guts on the floor. And then the translation from one of the characters is like, look at them playing with their guts like slow. So many slapstick cream pies. I'm just like, man, this is definitely, a, you know, like an English translation if you were to use Google translators. <laughs> but it, it's a great time. It's a great time. And it's one of my favorite trauma movies that's not produced by by trauma themselves. So definitely check it out. And uh, it's it's a creepy, creepy atmosphere. If you like the atmosphere of Resident Evil 1, like Adam had mentioned, uh, this is your slice of tea. And to your further point, the translation and everything, apparently just to get the phonetic sounds when they were directed on set was just make the shape of this with your mouth. You don't need to understand the context. And so that's why some of the things just, I don't feel like it's particularly well acted, but they also don't know what they're saying. It goes to something, this might seem completely tangential, but please bear with me. One of my all-time favorite Shakespearean actors, Bill Murray. You know why? Because in Hamlet 2000, he's the only fucking guy who looks like he knows what he's, I guess Leif Schraber is, but he looks like he understands what he's saying. And I hate when people just start talking and that kind of happens in this movie, but obviously this isn't trying to be like highbrow. So. That's why if they look like they don't know what they're saying, very well, they might not. Adam, what do you think? Yeah, so I definitely want to recommend what Doug recommended to us and catching the full uncut version of this on YouTube um, because there is a lot of eff- just amazing effects work. Like I said, it's it's got some stuff in there that'll shake you. It's definitely worth that full watch. Yeah. What else I want to say about this? Uh, pay attention to it because the editing is a bit dizzying with these uh, this uncut yes. version. It's like I checked my phone for something. I was checking an email and I came back up to the screen and I was like lost for a second. I had to rewind for about 30 seconds. But this is one to pay attention to because, yeah, dizzying editing. But also there's a lot of stuff you want to catch. This movie's really well done for what it is. And Aid, let's finish off with you. I really liked how dark and this one was it was pretty scary. I had some moments that I was like, oh my God. It has really great atmosphere for the budget that it was shot with and the fact that it's it's a trauma film. If you're not into trauma films, this is, then you'll definitely really like this one because I feel like this is by far the most different and had the, the most mean spiritedness of all of them that I've watched. So give it a give it a watch. I highly recommend this one and the fact that you can find it 
you know, and all its bloody, nasty goriness on YouTube for free, I would definitely give it a try. Yeah, I think that's a great distinction that Aid makes. This is a horror comedy, whereas I feel like most trauma is dark comedy, wherein it has, it's a comedy with horrific elements, whereas this is a horror movie with a, a spreckling, if you will, of jokey jokes. Couple chuckles. So you can find all of our merch and bullshit at Redbubble. You can find us at Slasher's Pod. You can find Adam at Otherboy underscore Art. Adrian at Pathologically ADE. Doug at Doug Bizarro. My name is Jake saying goodbye and good die. Good die, mate.